Hi, you're listening to Talking About Organizations, a podcast about management and organization studies where we read and discuss foundational texts and key ideas that inform the way we think about organized work today. Talking About Organizations is a community resource supported by our listeners. To find out how and learn more about our program, visit our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Now on with the show. Welcome to episode 109, our second episode covering Andrew Abbott's The System of Professions, an essay on the division of expert labor, published in 1989 by the University of Chicago Press. In this episode, we will cover in depth one of Abbott's case studies, titled The Construction of the Personal Problems Jurisdiction. This is part one of the episode where we will talk about the case that covers the emergence of a new domain of professional work that arose from the Industrial Revolution and the various professions seeking dominance and competing with each other over the course of a century plus. To learn more about the text, please go to our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com, where you will also find episode 67, where we covered Abbott's constructs of professions and professionalism. Hello, this is Pedro coming to you from Copenhagen. Hi, this is Greta coming to you from the beautiful town of Dordrecht in the Netherlands. And hi, this is Tom calling from Carlisle, Pennsylvania in the United States. And uh, this is the promised, long promised second episode on Andrew Abbott's The System of Professions, an essay on the division of expert labor that we explored back in episode 67. We released it in August 2020. It was recorded in the very early days of the pandemic. And at that point, we had said that we were going to cover this again because what we covered in the original episode was largely the constructs, the first half of the book, the constructs that they laid out in terms of what is he talking about with systems of professions? What is a profession? What is professional work? And what are, say, the jurisdictional claims that each profession has? You know, what is a jurisdiction? We said that we wanted to do the second half because the book is really long. It's very detailed, rich in detail, so much so that we knew going into the episode that one episode was just not enough. And the case studies that he did at the end uh, that make up part three, we were looking for an opportunity to explore those case studies. Now, it turns out that an opportunity has presented itself here, getting a little bit over three years later, as uh, we start looking into the current contemporary issues of the mental health crisis. And it turns out that one of the three cases is titled The Construction of the Personal Problems Jurisdiction. And it's a case study that relays the competition that went on among a number of professions looking to help people solve their own personal problems. Neurology, psychiatry, psychologists, and others are all part of the case. So what we're going to want to do is uh, want to talk a little bit about, you know, recap a little bit of 67 and then discuss the case and why it's so uh, informative of what is the present mental health uh, crisis that we face worldwide. So maybe we can start by laying out just a quick recap of some of the things that we talked on the previous episode. And of course, we referenced our listeners that that is the best summary of these different concepts. But the idea is that Abbott was writing this book, of which this chapter is one of the cases, in order to change the way people understood professions and professional work, right? It is entitled 
test systems in the title and the idea is to move beyond just the study of a particular group of people and what he says that was um, common in the early literature, you know, the career, so to speak, of a profession, the professionalization process and trying to look at the interdependencies between professional groups that um, strive for jurisdictional control over a particular set of problems, right? And this, exactly this case we're going to focus on is the groups that Tom just mentioned that are relating, trying to relate and claim a stake into the personal problem. Another thing that is important to say is that in this architecture that Abbott creates, there is an important emphasis on the study of work and the task and how they are done. That's another element that is important that it's not just about the people, it's not only about interdependencies, but the work they're trying to do. And importantly, and a lot of the chapter looks at that, are the cultural claims, right? The cultural understandings that seems to be the basis for somehow the legitimacy, the justification of the particular work of a group of people based on a particular set of techniques, a particular body of knowledge, right? So there's a lot that is in the chapter, and I think there's one important thing for which we can see that he wrote the chapter to sustain his overall argument is showing how a particular problem gets to be defined and understood and connect to particular diagnosis, inferences, systems, body of knowledge, right? And that's exactly what he tries to describe across this chapter. I'll also add that uh, he diffuses or sort of uh, counters some of the prevailing ideas about professions and professionalism at the time of his writing. There was a sort of an altruism that was thought about uh, with respect to professions back in the 1980s. This stems from things like the Hippocratic Oath that uh, medicine has had a special functioning in society in particular because of the service that it provides. And so it had a, a status. And Abbott tried to diffuse that because when he presents his uh, constructs, he doesn't necessarily say that they're ne that they're that the outcomes are good or that the justifications are good. It's just that they were. There was a, a way in which the competition occurred by which professions uh, competed over the same jurisdictions. And also that there was a settlement. Uh, some professions would disappear. Other professions would become dominant. And that sort of movement was in constant flux. And again, no value judgment. It was groundbreaking at the time. Nowadays, I think we are more attuned to this uh, sort of uh, professional competition in that there's, there's innate uh, goodness and risk associated with what goes on when professions compete for doing certain forms of work. Just a quick follow-up on this. I think it's also important to say, and we're going to talk more as we talk about the different groups that try, that fight for a particular you know, stake on personal problems. Sometimes you can see that in this history, it's not necessarily the group with the most quote-unquote effective treatment, right? A more robust set of ideas that prevails, but exactly there is a lot of contingencies and competitions that we were saying, Tom, that are behind that. So he's trying to move also away from this normativity and saying that, well, there are multiple possible reasons why a particular group um, end up controlling, owning a particular jurisdiction, right? And one last thing, I think maybe before we jump into the particular empirical rich story of this chapter is that there is also in particular that he's doing here that is particularly more visible in the cases that he has a particular 
way to analyze his history or historical data, right? Because one of the things that he says, and we can see in the text, is that he's trying to both respect the contingency of history, the complexity of um, these interdependencies that we talked about, but of course have a narrative that showcases the sequencing and the causalities, or at least how one particular move, so to speak, create the conditions from each other in ways that may not be predicted, right? So some of the things that he talks exactly about is how some of the groups, as they propose particular formulations for problems, as they offer particular treatments, as they actually leave particular spaces, like the clergy that we're going to talk about in a second, I imagine, these create the conditions for others to move, right? In a sort of eternal chess game. And he's trying to respect that in the very analysis and the writing of the chapter. Yes, you're right, uh, Pedro. And to add to that, I think part of it is causality and one thing leading to another. But what I liked about Abbott's writing is also that he pays attention to the context in which all this happened. So to for the listeners, you know, this was basically Abbott's uh, dissertation on which this chapter is based, where he studied the rise of the psychiatry profession. And basically in this chapter, he covers the period of post-industrial revolution up till uh, roughly the 1970s showing how the problem domain of personal problems uh, became a responsibility of different professions and how they competed around that. And uh, indeed, like there was causality, almost like a chess game sometimes between these uh, occupational groups. But also I felt like there were contextual conditions, like certain moments in time where there was an increase in mental health issues. And we can dive more into that later, but there was also some sort of randomness to it, like serendipity, perhaps. The actions of one profession shaped the conditions for for the other profession to act upon, but also there were conditions uh, based upon the historical time period and the particular place in which this uh, played out. And that, of course, is uh, the United States. Yeah, and uh, he goes through great pains in the early part of the chapter to explain his approach because it is not traditionally chronological or not purely chronological. He go he jumps back and forth in a couple of occasions because it made sense to do so. The story may have involved a certain number of groups along the main storyline, but to try to inject like pure, folks who became uh, who existed and became more prominent later would have made it really fo- hard to follow the chronology. So he he sort of uh, breaks the story out into branches until the end when it all coalesced together. But another thing that I think is uh, fascinating, and this will be a good way to springboard into the case itself, is the title, The Construction of the Personal Problems Jurisdiction. And this contrasts with the other two cases, which I just want to mention briefly. The first case study, which was based on what he calls the information professions, which covers the librarians, uh, bookkeepers, accountants, a whole range of professions that arose largely to handle information of various sorts, both qualitative and quantitative. That is a very, very old historical artifact. Those types of professions have been around in some form or another since antiquity. The legal profession and its competitors was the second case, and law has also been a a domain or a jurisdiction that's been there since antiquity. 
This is one that is a modern creation. That is the personal problems jurisdiction, according to Abbott, according to this, uh, this case study, started in the mid-19th century with the Industrial Revolution. So this is one where there was no established dominant anything. It was anything goes. So part of the thing that made this such an interesting case is to watch how different groups entered the fray as the whole idea that this was a, an area of expertise or an area of potential professional work started to take shape. And it uh, could potentially inform, you know, the creation of new professions. So how about we dive into the case and talk a bit about uh, how American nervousness came into being? Where, where the case starts off is around 1850, 1875 time period. And basically looking at the idea of problems of living, like everyday problems we have, everyday life problems, Abbott calls it. And how in that time period, the professional group that was concerned with this were the clergy. That's where it all started off. But they didn't really have a jurisdiction around it. It was just seen as um, a part of their responsibility as clergy to listen to the problems that people were struggling with and that being in the context of a religion. Right. The whole purpose of the clergy in the case was that it was all about salvation. I mean, they saw themselves as religious leaders first. The personal problems, you know, the dealing of personal problems uh, was just sort of naturally fell to them, but there was not a need to build a profession around it. And the reason why 1850 or, you know, the mid-19th century was so important was because this was a time of major change, major upheaval of society. We've covered this in Chandler. We've covered this in several of the other long historical renderings of the Industrial Revolution. You know, so many social structures were present before that point that just simply were there to help handle or help allow people and families and communities to just sort of manage themselves. And the Industrial Revolution significantly uh, changed all of that because then we started to see mass migrations of societies. We started to see people who were displaced from their community roots who were sort of like on their own. Some thrived, but many found themselves all of a sudden uh, like alone, exposed, unsure how to handle what was going on around them, unsure where they fit in. The epidemic of American nervousness was sort of like a label that was attached to this just broad range of dysfunctions, problems that people started to have coping with this immense amount of change. And the clergy was not really first, you know, the, they were not really focused on that. They, would, they didn't see it as their role. Their role was salvation. Or more specifically, and he talks about that, the clergy saw this as almost like, we may say a symptom for something that was understood in a different way because they were operating through a different cultural frame, right? That the problem was not individual. Maybe the symptom was just that the person had lost their path from salvation, from God, and therefore it was more about reconnecting. So maybe we imagine here a made-up scenario, right? That someone would arrive with a particular complaint about what we today would call anxiety or whatever, but of course would not be called as such back then, nervousness or any kind of, you know, mal de vivre, you know, like the French would say, so like the struggle to live. 
and we understood in a particular frame. And I think that's exactly what is very interesting about this chapter and unique, as you were saying, Tom, because this is a case on how problems were constructed and how the culture of repertoire and the theories the professionals bring, and we're going to get more into that in a second, right, have such an important role in making so something a thing, right? Let me use a colloquialism. I mean, seeing that as a thing that is distinctive. And as you're saying, both you and Greta, is because we are in a particular context and we think maybe should say it. It's the one of modernity, of individualism. Then we talked at length about Taylorism and what it meant, industrialization, because people were atomized in many ways, including the workplace. They lost a sense of autonomy, right? As you were saying, there was all this migration, this sense of change. And not only these things were happening, but both in objective terms, people were more, at the same time, isolated, but also more fragmented because they were, you know, having multiple roles. So that's why, again, the whole story of the clergy is important because one is no longer only, even if a person is religious as a member of a particular group, as a religious group, but, you know, there are multiple belongings and identities and so on that are happening, which creates the sense of fragmentation of loss, right? And create also an understanding, that's the individualism, right, of modernity, that such things ought to be individual. And it's interesting that some of the tensions that exist or the opportunities that different groups exploit is exactly about whether the treatment or the diagnosis, the sources are individual or not, right? And probably the clergy were thinking too much in group social terms versus what have come to become the dominant um, paradigm to make sense of such problems. Of course, another element between this tension between individual and society is also between how much medicalized or physiologized, we may say, um, such problems are come to be understood depending on the different occupational groups that are trying to make sense of that. Yeah, that's a great point. And um, to follow up on that, I think to emphasize the profound impact social changes had on, on society and on people, like Eben mentions that by the 1920s, when they first started to collect data, Americans were taking hypnotic medications at the rate exceeded only by cough, rheumatism and stomach remedies. So it shows like there was a profound change happening in society, impacting people's well-being. And perhaps it also explains why doctors came in the picture to deal with people's personal problems. Perhaps this is a nice segue to talk about uh, the neurologists, because I found it very funny how actually the jurisdiction of neurologists emerged as compared to other doctors that when other doctors could not make sense of the symptoms of a patient and no treatment worked, basically they were sent to the neurologist and that's where, where that profession stepped in to deal with, uh, with, with personal problems. Absolutely. Uh, the, the neurologist was, uh, was what Abbott initially introduced as one of the two groups that set out to tackle it. The clergy being the first because they were so numerous and he made uh, multiple references, by the way, to how much the clergy outnumbered all of the other professions, and yet the clergy was not 
They just didn't see, you know, as Pedro said, they didn't see themselves as being really the lead in this. It was sort of, it was reframed in other concerns. Whereas the neurologists made it a legitimate, independent element. The neurologists started to come up with, even though it was haphazard, they came up with their own diagnostic schemes. They came up with their own treatments. They uh, they basically followed the uh, the definition of professional work and started to establish that. Although there was a lot of contention over what was really a proper diagnosis, really a, a good understanding of what was going on, you had a lot of people that were doing independent things, trying to solve these problems. And in uh, page around page 287 to uh, 88, some of the causes that they came up with were just, they were laughable. Things like lifestyle, general health, overwork, emotional traumas, and various other things. It was... There wasn't really a clear definition of what was the cause of the nervousness. They were sort of trying to classify it and work their way through almost one case at a time. So it's not like the neurologist came in and took over the whole thing right away. They struggled to try to define this domain of work. Meanwhile, the clergy wasn't putting up much resistance. So one other thing I want to emphasize in this switch, and I think it's important for the overall story between clergy and neurology, is that, I mean, first of all, I think it's interesting or important to say that looking at the past, the lens of the past is always interesting because you see how much more tentative and complex and contingent things were. And I think it's interesting to see, as Greta was saying, how medical work was so different, right? And exactly how neurologists had this residual type of situation in which they had all sorts of things thrown at them, including what would become personal problems related to mental health issues, which is our way today to think about that, right? And the other thing is that they make this switch in trying to understand the causes in more mundane, professional, according to a particular system of um, diagnosis, even though imperfect, even though very almost ad hoc in some situations. And there is an interesting discussion about how much the knowledge in practice in neurology was misaligned with the one it was in academic knowledge, right? And how there was more robust information, but was very narrow in how actually in the practice, they used different textbooks, different um, knowledge systems that covered a lot of things. And again, it's not as important, the particular treatments and diagnosis, but the fact that it's shift the frame in which such problems were understood that then created the condition for other groups, including other medical groups, to claim a part or a stake into such jurisdiction. Yeah, how I read it was that the neurologists brought their apparatus of diagnosis to this problem domain, and that was something that the clergy never did. And that's how I read it in Abbott, that that shift happened and uh, he also said the neurologist led the foundations of the jurisdiction. And I guess like what made it so difficult to come up with treatments was also the wide range of patients that they got from uh, referred to from other doctors. Like uh, Abbott writes, in practice, their clientele were increasingly made up of people who were perplexed other daughter, doctors. So uh, it was a wide variety of people with a wide variety of symptoms and they had to start building a diagnostical system. So that's where it all started. But I, I, I think I remember he also said later that basically the fact that they stayed with 
idiosyncratic treatments that were adapted to the patient at hand also made them vulnerable for other occupations to step into this into this space and claim the right to to own this uh, problem domain. Yeah, and uh, that that sort of leads us to now the the second uh, major episode or uh, of this, and that's the psychiatric revolution. You know, after the turn of the 20th century, he says that the psychiatrists emerged and gradually merged with the neurologists, and then the group split along different lines about 20 years later. And it's kind of interesting because, like, uh, just one other uh, interesting detail about the neurologist that's uh, worth mentioning that he has uh, towards the end is about how neurologists in certain places like Boston and Philadelphia started to establish workplace jurisdictions. In essence, they were starting to build offices and places where they would perform their professional work for patients to come into. That was somewhat absent in the or in the more haphazard uh, part of the neurologist's history, that by itself, by the fact that uh, the mass media started to take notice of this whole thing, is what sort of allowed the neurology jurisdiction to take uh, uh, to gain greater root. So that by the time then the psychiatrists come in, they have a, a little bit more of a uh, uh, of a foundation by which this jurisdiction could expand. And the psychiatrists, their foray into this was in addressing juvenile delinquency and public institutions, basically the treatment of the insane, and which, of course, is a little bit different. You know, it's obviously a bit different than what the neurologists were looking at. But over time, the intellectual jurisdiction started to merge just naturally because it was basically the emergence of a theory that saw all of these problems as somewhat linked. And uh, it's highlighted a little bit later. The implicit assumptions were that all social factors in nervous and mental disease were important only through their effect on the individual. So that allowed the neurologists and the psychiatrists to look at this domain as somewhat unified. And that any violation of social rules, the mildest psychopathies and the faintest eccentricities signified mental problems. And therefore, the proper approach to such problems was individual, not social. So therein lies the movement of the jurisdiction to think uh, it medicalized, helped to medicalize this uh, personal problems domain. And it uh, ultimately, because psychiatry was so well established in the mental institutions, it allowed them to get a leg up as this merged jurisdiction started to grow and the psychiatrists eventually took it over. Yes, exactly. And there was also a shift in the thinking of these of the psychiatrists, right? Where they like there was massive burnout among psychiatrists that were working in these institutions and uh, in insane asylums, and they kind of said like you know these people are untreatable. We shouldn't focus on treating them. We should prevent people to end up in that state. So prevention became a more important value for this occupational group as opposed to before, right? Yes, and if I'm not mistaken, that's exactly how the. Alliance, truce, we may call it the neurologist was formed, right? One thing I wanted to point out that is a little bit more at the level of the mechanisms that are driving the narrative of Abbott, right, might be worth, because we already see some of the important things that, well, he talks about, <laughs> we talked about that in the previous episode, right? But we see them in context operating in this case. One is, of course, the importance of bodies of knowledge, right, has this whole idea that one of the definitions, one of the elements in the definition of a profession is exactly this recurse 
to an abstract body of knowledge. And we see how he talks about theory, and Tom was just talking about the theory that seems to drive in some of the work by psychiatrists is important, right? And one of the things that I find interesting now is exactly how, in part, one may say that he's intellectualizing the work, and Bourdieu would probably say that is an academic view of work, but I think that he does it very well in showing how these bodies of knowledge provide resources, not just for the work itself, but also for the cultural understandings that are made legitimate, that shape the way people understand, the way people come to trust or not particular groups. So you know, there is an interesting row of theories, right, um, that are sustaining particular treatments and so on. The other thing I think it's also important, I think, to highlight is that I think there is a tension throughout this chapter and throughout the book, right? And I think we talked about that in the previous episode. And I mentioned this before, that on one hand, he's trying to be agnostic and beyond any particular normative claim on a particular group tends to dominate because it has a better quote-unquote um, approach that is a more functional in terms of basically, no effectiveness. And sometimes he says it's more about exactly the theory, the cultural things, sometimes seems to be more about the politics. I see all of this as coexisting, and I think it's just interesting to point it out, because of course in real life, it's all of that, right? Knowledge is related to politics, is related to one's perception about effectiveness, not just effectiveness itself, but the perception and the cultural discourse and so on and so forth. But they all seem to be playing a role here. And the case of the neurologist is particularly interesting as well, because one of the things he says is that even though to some extent they did not enjoy some kind of monopoly or domination in terms of the workplace, given they were so small, and this was out somewhat of a choice, he attributes that, the psychiatrist had this more pervasive embedding in workplaces, right? that in a way made also this alliance mutually beneficial, so to speak, right? And exactly showcases how these different elements of the theory, the abstract body of knowledge, the structural resources and control of particular set of access to clients, for example, in this case, you know, all are enmeshed in this process. And I think another factor that played a role there, Pedro, in, in addition to what you mentioned, was the way education was set up. So uh, as I understood, like the neurologists and the way they trained their people were confined to particular geographies around the big cities, but they were pretty elite and exclusive. So they failed to produce the number of people that were needed to treat the mental health issues that society was dealing with. And so this is where uh, psychiatry stepped in, uh, which this profession actually just emerged out of, you know, the institutions that were dealing with the insane, uh, quote unquote. And so they, because of where they worked and the, these institutions, they became an occupation that was specialized dealing with them, then focusing on prevention and also an increase in uh, the number of people that trained the psychiatrists, they kind of stepped out of their institutions and said, you know, <laughs> we can also provide our services outside of the institutions and deal with uh, uh, the problem domain that the neurologist dealt with before. 
Yeah, it's also worth mentioning, though, that in uh, in the case also, uh, while it may sound like being confined to specific geographies or located largely in academia was uh, perhaps a disadvantage, it can also be a tremendous advantage for establishing the intellectual legitimacy of a profession and allow it to withstand attack from other professions, as the the later cases show. So it's and and I think. Uh, that may have been why the merger in this particular case was the was the best possible outcome, because while the psychiatrists had established such a wide grounding between their comprehensive theory and their ability to develop diagnostic and treatment methods uh, over time, and also kind of winning the public support, they had uh, they had become known, which was another thing that was really important for establishing their credibility with the potential for clientele, they still lacked some degree of intellectual strength that only the neurologists could provide. So the merger, so he had the merger, but then eventually uh, that merger couldn't last very long and the psychotherapists come in and we start to see a split. It was only a couple of decades, right? That both uh, occupational groups, both professions were, were dealing with the same set of issues. Right. There's only a couple of decades, which... You know, I mean, in a case like this, it sounds like such a short amount of time, but that's, it is actually quite a long time when you're dealing with a, uh, such a massive amount of social change that was going on at that time. Right, right. And then I guess where the split happened was also based on sorting out what everybody's role was in this problem domain. And where we saw that the neurologists trained as doctors kind of focused on the biological, physical etiology and, and symptoms and treatment, and where the psychiatrists kind of focused on the psychological etiology and, and, and problems that, that patients came with. So the vast amount of problems that ended up under the jurisdiction of these two groups kind of split in two now which perhaps also gave like more focused patient groups that then helped foster the knowledge of the issues they were uh, dealing with and, and, and suffering from. And it was precisely from this that Abbott came up with the concept of, of client differentiation, where professions, even professions that are working in the same general areas, applying similar expert knowledge, still differentiate themselves according to some sort of specialization of the problems by which kind of clientele that they focus on. And sometimes in, in this area, it, it became stratified between problems of the rich and problems of the poor, for example, that saw uh, professional lines divide. So another element that perhaps is important to briefly touch on is that as all of this is evolving, and of course, we may just want to mention that there are different groups that attempt to claim a jurisdiction, right? There's at some point the gynecological neurologist, and it provides the case of a group that attempted to claim a stake into this whole debate, into this domain, right? It was not successful. You know, there is different groups that later are coupled in a couple and bring particular understandings of diagnosis. He talks about the social workers, right, that start and traditionally had a more social by definition perspective and how they end up mostly in a situation of subordination with the more psychological psychiatrists and psychologists and psychiatrist mm -hmm. groups, right, and eventually actually switch back to a more um, individual view. 
But I think what is important here is that there are, at some point, as of course, as Greta was saying, there's more specialization, more types of patients that are split, more expertise that gets accumulated, we may say, or specialties. Particular, we may call understandings, forms of diagnosis and treatment that said meant, right? And one important element, of course, here is Freud, just the person, but also the body of knowledge produced by this person who seems to be the one that somewhat, at least in the spirit that is being traced, won the struggle for dominance as a central frame for understanding such problems. But of course, the interesting issue about history is that you can see there were many others that were in contention to such prominence. Yeah, and let's, uh, let's also add that the clergy tried uh, various movements to get back into the business too, which didn't uh, necessarily work. Uh, so you had the Emmanuel movement and you had Christian scientists. And the, some, of the, some of the reasons why they uh, did not succeed was simply because by the time that they got into the fray, the attitudes towards clergy were, uh, had not changed. It just felt like they were rank outsiders that didn't belong in this jurisdiction the Freudian system had become so deeply rooted that it just, it became dominant. You know, we don't have to go through the, you know, the whole part about why, but it was very clear that what he did was they came up with a much more useful form of classifying psychological diseases, of coming up with therapeutic treatments, that uh, many of which actually showed some success. And that uh, the whole body of knowledge, you know, the whole system of uh, that Freud established uh, just simply became very, very dominant as the 20s and the 30s panned on. And all, all other comers pretty much either continued to work in niche areas or disappeared. So it's interesting almost because I feel that Freudian theory would be understood today almost as, I think some people would say fluffy, right? Um, given that we have a much more almost gene level or cognitive, that is a winning paradigm today, right? Or it, sorry, is it let's say a very prevalent paradigm in dealing with what was discussed in this chapter as personal problems, but it would be understood as mental health today. But back in the day, and I think it's interesting what um, I would say is that the uniqueness of the Freudian perspective was it, it gave theories that was about psychic mechanisms, that it was not just about syndromes, and he talks about how there's, there is more of this lumpy, bulky, not as glunder enough understandings of what is happening, but they try to um, explain how particular mechanisms are related to specific symptoms. And in Abbott's words, you know, provides a more logical hermeneutic that support professional inference. And if you remember, one of the things that we talked about that was important in Abbott's system, um, in his understanding of professions, that exactly there's something about the body of knowledge that professions are at the same time a little bit esoteric, but comprehensible, right? So it seemed that Freudianism was the right balance for this situation and was able to get to particular causes and provide an ideological-based treatment. You know, that's the idea that provide a particular concrete um, mechanism and explanations for such context, right? So I think it was particularly interesting. I think there is something about also when I discussed just in passing on how such theory was extremely popular, right? And became a frame beyond just an issue of mental health. Of course, I think the idea for Abbott is that that was later, but there is also potentially something that feeds each other, right? That it was not just that it was effective 
in the clinic, but became a way to see the problem that became so popular and kind of almost um, prepares people since it becomes part of the vocabulary in which lay people, we all included, right, think in terms of unconscious nowadays and so on. It has this important role in this um, evolution. Yeah, and I guess for the listeners to to understand like the, the influence of Freudian psychoanalysis, so this be, kind of became the dominant paradigm to treat mental health issues at the time, like it emerged around the 1920s and up till the 60s and 70s, this was the dominant way to treat people with mental health issues focusing particularly on the elite and the people that could afford <laughs> because all, all the psychiatrists started to establish private practices to treat people uh, going out of the institutions. But yeah, it, it, it shows like this was really like the dominant framework, the dominant approach to view mental health issues. And I guess like, you know, the body of knowledge that, that we now refer to as a psychoanalysis was general enough that everybody could, it applied to everybody, but it was also ambiguous enough that um, you could use it in many cases, like compared to the psychiatric gynecologist that kind of tried to explain mental health issues, connecting it to the female organs. They could not explain all the, the men that had mental health issues. So it, 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 it was still pretty ambiguous, but it was not general enough. So I guess like in, in one way, uh, the, the body of knowledge was, was, was ambiguous in general enough for, for people to identify with it, to, to be applicable. But also it gave grounds to a new approach that therapy became like a way to deal with mental health issues and that there were diagnoses. And perhaps this is also a segue where the psychologist entered this uh, problem domain, this jurisdiction, uh, which just as the neurologist had a very big academic uh, focus on testing before. So first the role of the psychologist was just to, to test and then the uh, psychiatrist did the treatment. Uh, but more and more as they expanded in, in size, and this became especially around the, the 60s, uh, psychology became, became a very popular they expanded out of just doing diagnosis and also started to reinvent therapies. And uh, that's also when you see that more, more diverse therapies emerge and people step away from uh, psychoanalysis. I think a very interesting part of the conclusion of the case was the fact that the psychiatrists had almost abandoned their home base of working in mental hospitals by the end. That also kind of shows that the workplace jurisdictions, public opinion... Professions evolve. Professions do evolve. And they can abandon what was their initial route in the pursuit of trying to maintain strong jurisdictional claims. It just so happens that they ran, uh, you know, did a face plant against uh, the psychologist because then when, um, when they created the National Institute of Mental Health, that got taken over by the psychologists by the 1970s, according to the end of the case study. And, and oh, by the way, he concluded the title. I, I love the title of the conclusion of this case, The Clergy Surrender. Because <laughs> uh, I did mention that the definite clerical movements had tried to re-enter the fray various times. And uh, he, he basically says that this, at this particular point in time, when he ends the case in the 1970s, 
The clergy had uh, just about all abandoned it. There were still individuals who tried to reignite a, a jurisdictional attack against the psychologists and the psychiatrists with absolutely no success. But but that's basically where the story ended, was right, pretty much there in the 1970s. Yeah, you're right, Tom. And um, I guess like also this is a moment in time around the 1970s that a number of contextual factors also played a role in this uh, in this evolution. It was a time period, you know, it was after the war. Uh, there was there was a, a flood of demand for psychotherapy, so there were more people needing therapy than there were psychiatrists that could provide it. Also, there was an increase in education that played a role here, according to Abbott, and a wave of secularization. Uh, that people moved away from uh, Christianity and religion. So this all coming together also, um, yeah, these, these were contextual factors that happened and gave way to more and more demand, more need for counselors. And this is where kind of the psychologist uh, stepped in. And he mentioned somewhere, I was looking on the pages where I could find it, but I think it was by the 1970s that... 20%, do you remember the 20 and 50%? I think these were mental health institutions where 50% of uh, the, the people giving therapy were psychologists and there were only 20% psychiatrists. Yes, I, uh, I, do re- I do remember that. I don't remember exactly where that was, but uh, yeah, I do, re- I do remember that. And that is kind of uh, interesting to show how the domain shifted and where professions took over care or the provision of the service, whereas other professions may have confined themselves more to intellectual pursuits or academia. It's just a it's just an interesting evolution. And considering this case study was about the construction of a domain or the construction of a jurisdiction that simply did not exist. And in in the course of a century, which sounds like such a long time, you see so much movement, the coming and going of ideas, the competition of ideas, the the claims and the uh, the attacks and the the creation of uh, institutions, such as the National Institute of Mental Health, all of that was uh, that was central to Abbott's thesis in the fir- at the beginning of the book. You see those play out in this case. And uh, the end result is not necessarily whether or not society is any better off for it, but it's obviously a journey that began that uh, there was no going back. And as I guess we'll discuss in part two, the journey kept on for the next, uh, for, for the 50 years following this case, leading to now some new questions about what is the purpose and what are the issues regarding people's mental health today? And how is it playing out and affecting uh, society in profound ways? And what what are the professions uh, trying to do about it? And that concludes the episode for today. Thank you for listening. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of their respective organizations or institutions. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation and found it valuable. And if so, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast service and you won't miss an episode. We also welcome your feedback, so if you liked or didn't like something, or have a correction or suggestion for us, please get in touch via Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website, www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope to see you for the conclusion of this episode here on Talking About Organizations. Talking About Organizations.